Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Evan Ackerman, and I'm a journalist with IEEE Spectrum. Mm-hmm. So, as you already report about robotics, I would like to ask you when was the first time you heard about robotics, and what was the feeling at this time when you heard about it? I'm not sure when the first time was. I, I would imagine that the first time I really was introduced to a robot was probably through either Star Wars or, or Star Trek, but I didn't start writing about robots until I think 2007 or, or 2008, and when I started that, it was really just a hobby, and there have been a lot of robots since then. Mm-hmm. And what does the feeling come to you at this time? Something resonate to you? Is you scared or just curious about it? Uh, I think that it was mostly curiosity. I ended up writing about robots for a bit of a strange reason. I had been a a tech blogger for a couple of years, and the guy who ran the blog I was writing for said, I bought this domain name. It's called botjunkie.com, and I thought we could make a robotics blog. And I told him, Mm -hmm. I I don't know anything about robots. And he said, it doesn't matter. Just start writing stuff. Mm -hmm. And... So that's where that came from. So I think my my intro to robots was just kind of frantically trying to find things to write and learning as much as I could in a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. Great. So I would like to ask you how you define robotics from your perspective as you report about tech. That's how you would define it, a robot. No, oh, that's, that's a really difficult question. And... Uh, I, the best I can do is kind of give give my opinion, which mm-hmm. is that uh, from from my perspective, I think a robot is something that can um, sense and make a decision and take an action, and it also has to have like its own kind of embodied presence. Mm-hmm. So I, I draw the distinction between. Um, like a, a robot's not just some kind of artificial intelligence and it's not an autonomous system in the sense that it's not like the robotic part of your dishwasher. Um, the, the classic example of kind of the, the what is a robot question as well as a thermostat a robot because mm-hmm. it fulfills a bunch of criteria. Um, I, I kind of draw the line like before thermostat because I don't feel like it's its own embodied system. It's it's a it's part of your house and, and also it doesn't move and I think that that's a uh, a relevant criteria for robots too, but it's a pretty nebulous definition. Mm-hmm. And I think that for a lot of people, if if you think it's a robot, then you can probably make a good argument as to why it's a robot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So as you're reporting about robotics all the time, what could be the misconceptions you, as, as from perspective as a reporter, what is the misconceptions you just to see, oh, this might be hype or exaggeration? something you can say about it? We try really hard at Spectrum to keep away from from hyping things. Mm-hmm. And it 
it sometimes makes our stories more difficult to read because we try to inject as much realism as possible. Uh, that's part of the reason that I spend so much time at conferences like ICRA and IROS and, and talking to researchers just to figure out, like asking all the awkward questions that aren't kind of in the press release, right? That, that mm-hmm. are like, well, how well does this actually work? And when we see this video, how many times did you have to try and shoot this video before you got something that looked good? So in general, hype at this point is, I think, driven by three things. Mm-hmm. There's the, the hype that's been driven by science fiction for a very long time. Yeah. Um, there's hype that's driven by uh, robotics companies who you know want to convince investors and and their clients that robots are amazing and that they should buy them. Mm-hmm. And then there's also hype driven by I hate to say it, but like uh, anyone who posts a video of a robot demo on the internet because. Mm-hmm the vast majority of the time these these demo videos while they're amazing and awesome to watch like you know you're seeing the one take out of 10 that worked and the people who watch them are just watching the video and they're not even reading the description they're not getting all the context about you know why this is difficult why it won't work outside of a lab so i think that as as a journalist i have a responsibility to um, try and communicate the whole story. And I think that also researchers have a responsibility to try and make sure that a casual view- viewer will have a better idea about the context. And I always appreciate it when researchers put kind of like bloopers at the end of their video because it's not just fun to watch. It's also a reminder that, you know, this doesn't really work that well yeah. or it doesn't work well all of the time. Yeah, but do you think it's tricky for you because as a journalist, you have to make sure you have a, a nice story for audience. And is it tricky to just because sometimes the hype is not from the journalist themselves, but I think from some researchers, do you agree with that? It is tricky and I'm, I'm responsible, I think, certainly for trying to come up with, you know, really good headlines, for mm-hmm. example, and that's just... And it's because I want people to read the story I write. And so I try not to sensationalize too much while keeping it exciting and kind of getting people interested. And that's a very fine line. And I recognize that. And um, yeah, it, it's it's tricky. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, it's really important to kind of go one level farther than I think a lot of um, a lot of that you then you see in in a lot of publications and I don't want to you know we're responsible for Mm -hmm. this just as much as anyone else is Um, but like it's tricky to know what the right questions are to ask sometimes Mm -hmm. in order to figure out what what the whole story is um because understandably especially when you're talking to companies like they don't really want to highlight all the difficulties they're having you know they don't want to highlight the situations in which their things don't work Mm -hmm. um but it's our responsibility as journalists to figure out what the limitations are and kind of present what you're seeing as honestly as we can and it's difficult but Mm -hmm. we don't always get it right but but we're trying Mm-hmm. But do you think there could be a solution that could really please all the parties from researcher and you as journalist 
and also the audience who's listening or reading uh, uh, your story. What do you think would be a reliable solution so that in the long run we can't mislead the public or lay people? Do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, the best solution is just to make robots that are amazing and, and work perfectly all the time. Mm -hmm. That's not the realistic solution. Uh, I, I don't know. it Because there's those are kind of different parties and they all have different objectives. And unfortunately, the objective of most of the people who are watching YouTube videos and reading articles is they they want to be mostly entertained and mm -hmm. they also want a little bit of knowledge. Um, and ideally they would just want all the knowledge they can and um, be able to appreciate what they're seeing in that context. And again, this is something that we have trouble with and the best that we can do is compromise because mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, like, well, do we, do we post the really exciting headline and the short video and then like kind of a punchy paragraph or two and maybe that post is going to do really well or do we post a very realistic headline and you know the long video mm -hmm. with uh, the, the equations in it and the algorithms and stuff and then you know eight paragraphs with an interview from the researchers and then we look at our metrics and people only spent 30 seconds reading it. Um, so it's really difficult to make everybody happy all the time. Mm -hmm. I think at IEEE, we, we err more towards getting that extra information in there, uh, even if a lot of our audience is just going to look at the video. Mm -hmm. um, we still like we're, we're again, we're, we're trying to present the whole story as reliably as possible, even if it is uh, more technical than a lot of people are going to read. Mm -hmm. So I would like to ask you, since you started the journey of our journalist in reporting on robotics, how we would see the progress of robotics in this year's? It's, it's all over the place. And again, it depends on how you define robotics. I think that a lot of what people call robotics or AI or feel like there's mm -hmm. an overlap there that I wouldn't necessarily call an overlap. I mean, you, you see that all over the place in mm -hmm. software. Mm -hmm. um, as far as robotic hardware, in our daily lives, it's, it's a little bit hard to say. Um, you can argue that robotics in cars has made a very big difference for a very long time, although it's been mostly invisible. Um, I, I like to mention anti-lock brakes anytime I, I talk about like robotics in, in our daily lives because it your car has been a robot for a while. Like if, if your car an, has had anti-lock brakes, you know, it, it can make decisions about how to brake better than you can. Mm -hmm. And as far as I'm concerned, that, that makes your car a robot. For things that more that people more commonly think of as robots in our daily lives, I think they're they're kind of not something that folks have direct experiences with, but the easy example is uh, fulfillment and warehousing. Like it, if you order something from Amazon, odds are pretty high that your order has been handled by a robot at some point. Um, so that, there's that. And I think that 
as far as progress going forward. I, I try to be optimistic about home robots. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I love all of the robot vacuums I have. Um, I think that's a great solution to a problem that is eminently solvable by robots. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, like we're starting to see a couple. Um, yeah, I, I wrote an article. Uh, I guess it was earlier this week about uh, a powered exoskeleton that wants to kind of go into industry that I think is another fantastic idea. Mm-hmm. Um, there's exoskeletons that are kind of going into rehab, um, rehab settings too. So, you know, daily lives, I think, I think what we're most likely to see is sort of these isolated robotic systems that are doing specific tasks um, sort of specific human assistive tasks and, and, but as far as like a general purpose robot that's making our lives better, that's, that's kind Mm -hmm. of a ways away. Oh, and of course drones and, um, like sidewalk delivery robots. Those are something I think, I mean, drones are all over the place, but the delivery robots too, that's going to be sort of a daily life robot in the next couple of years. Yeah, this is great. So I would like to ask you what is the most like mind blowing robot without it, what does it mean with a robot that so you're reporting what was the most mind-blowing and what was most scary or creepy robots you have ever reported on? <laughs> um, so mind-blowing, I mean, that's a that's a really great question because, well, for a couple of reasons, there's, there's all kinds of different ways that my mind could be blown mm-hmm. by robots or, or other things. And like, because I spend so much time like, you know, reading papers and going to conferences and stuff and learning about robots. I'm, I'm really, really jaded about them now. Like it's, it's, I've been doing this for like a decade, over a decade. And so what it, the bar to kind of blow my mind with a robot is, is really, really high. Although sometimes it's just like really little things that it didn't, don't seem important that blow my mind. I mean, the easy example is, um, the Skydio drone that I reviewed a couple of weeks ago, which is, a thousand dollar consumer drone that that you can buy that has uh kind of vision-based dynamic obstacle avoidance that is just it's astonishing it's the best that i've ever seen Mm -hmm. and i think it's not just the performance of the drone that blew my mind it's the fact that like you know i've been following drones and research environments for a long time and this is a consumer product that is as good as or better than like anything I've seen in a lab. It's it's astonishing. And I think that like the other reason that blows my mind too is it means that we're starting to see a transition between like amazing robots uh, just kind of being developed in labs and staying there. Mm-hmm. And then now we've got amazing robots are being developed by companies that are actually kind of out and either you can buy them or they're kind of actively making the world a better place. So it's this transition between like uh, robotics labs leading the way and companies leading the way. And I want to be clear too that that I recognize that a lot of the work that, that companies are doing are, is based on like fundamental research still being done at robotics labs. So I don't want to suggest at all that like robotics labs are any less important. I just... Um, it it's amazing to me that this stuff is now like out and purchasable and like you can 
people can experience it and that's fantastic mm -hmm. uh, as, as far as scary goes uh, I think one thing that that scares me a little bit yeah. is the reliance on learning kind of whether it's supervised or unsupervised um, just like deep deep learning a little bit um, because it always makes me nervous when like robots that are trained on massive data sets to do specific things like what well so one example is um, I guess I'm talking about stuff like adversarial mm -hmm. attacks on mm -hmm. robots that that perform physical actions based on um, based on kind of rules that they've learned looking at at these massive data sets mm -hmm. when they do it unsupervised. So I wrote an article, I wrote a couple articles about adversarial attacks on autonomous cars where, you know, you put stickers on a stop sign and the cars, the cars cameras, the car interprets that stop sign to be a different sign, like a speed limit sign. And so I think what's, what scares me is it's not so much that I'm worried that like, you know, autonomous cars aren't going to be able to recognize stop signs. Mm -hmm. It's what I find a little bit scary is just the this enormous gulf between, like, how a ro how a deep learning based robot understands the world or doesn't understand the world, mm -hmm. and how a human understands the world. And I think that you know, deep learning is used to solve a lot of problems. Um, but I think it also creates a bunch of problems, and especially when we're talking about like using these kinds of systems to to make a decision that would otherwise have been made by a human, um, you know, to do unsupervised stuff. That that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I think just because we don't really know necessarily what's going on. And sometimes these systems are unpredictable or manipulated in ways that we wouldn't expect. Mm -hmm. So do you think we have to trust robot now or still too early to trust them? I think that robots are trustable to do like specific tasks, constrained tasks in constrained environments they're still not really like real world compatible i mean mm -hmm. i'm not sure of any robot that is able to that you can completely trust to do what it says it's going to do in a place that is unfamiliar to it mm -hmm. or i guess in a situation that's unfamiliar to it um, to go back to the Skydio drone, like that's that's the best drone I've ever seen with the most autonomy I've ever seen, and the, there is a big question about it too. That's that's going to be difficult for Skydio to answer about. Can the people who buy this drone trust it to do what Skydio says it can do? And the thing is, like, you know, it's it's a vision-based obstacle avoidance system. Mm -hmm. So it has all of the problems that I mean, basically that eyeballs have. Like if you're looking directly into the sun, you can't see a lot. You know, there are some things that are too small to see whether you're looking into the sun or not. Uh, so like while I was reviewing it, it 
Uh, it, it never crashed, but it did run into things a couple times. And there were a couple more times where it didn't run into things because I saw that it was getting into a situation like, you know, with the low sun angle and, and with tree branches and stuff where like, I was pretty sure like, yeah, that, that would, <laughs> that would not go well for any vision based robot that I ever, you know, I've ever worked with. So, you know, I stopped, um, before the drone could run into something. So it's, it's like, you can trust robots up to a certain point as long as you're also very well aware of what their limitations are. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be difficult for Skydio and other companies who are putting robots out into a world full of unstructured environments because um, they want their robots to be trustworthy. They want people who buy them to trust them. But there are limitations and I think those limitations are going to be around for a while. And the question is like, how do you tell your customers? Yes, you can trust this drone. Just, uh, be careful when you have these specific combinations of situations that make visual navigation tricky. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that, that Skydio has done okay with that. And uh, to be clear, like they're, drone is great. They do have some disclaimers. Um, and they also say like, if the drone run into, runs into something, it shouldn't, they'll replace it for free, which is, um, a lot of confidence on their part, but just coming from somebody who I think has a lot of experience with robots, uh, my level of trust in them is, mm -hmm. is maybe lower than it should be or could be, or maybe not. So do you think that any significant decision should be, shouldn't be done by robots? that uh, what we can conclude. Do you agree with that or? We... Uh, I think a lot of decisions can be made by robots, but kind of going back to the deep learning stuff, I'm a little suspicious of robots that make decisions that affect humans without a human in the loop, um, especially when those decisions are based on incomplete information or decisions regarding other humans because robots have a very poor understanding of interhuman relationships and emotions and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So how we can make sure that robotics are really beneficial to humanity as all? So do you think that something a researcher consider practically in the research or what do you think about that? Um, it's difficult. A, a lot of the research that that I follow is is basic research mm -hmm. where it's difficult to say it's difficult to draw a direct line between that research and like it benef something that's tangibly beneficial to humanity. And kind of the joke is that you, you just say that, you know, this could be used for uh, disaster robots or search and rescue robots. Or I don't know if it's a joke, but it's like a trope, I suppose. Um, and but at the same time, like a lot of this work is really important and is really valuable. And whether it's used for disaster robots or not, it's like, I'm, I'm glad it's getting funded, but this is something that I run into a lot when I'm at a conference and, uh, trying to, trying to do reporting and, you know, I'm talking to somebody and, you know, they have this, really amazing algorithm of some sort, you know, or, and it's, it's very abstract, but 
it's also very useful and that that makes it very difficult though for me to write about because i do in order to connect with an audience i have to well, non-robotics audience mm-hmm. i have to write an article that that they can somehow see affecting their lives and sometimes that doesn't happen but but that's okay so i think that it's important to look beyond uh kind of immediate or short-term or even medium-term benefits in the con- when you're thinking about robotics mm-hmm. research and remember that you know sometimes you really need to start way way down the line and work on something that either will pay off for you and you know five or ten years or will pay off for even the next generation of researchers that comes after you who takes whatever you've made and uses it to build a product that does help people mm-hmm. so what do you think about when people or some researchers say that we design robot to endure the pain? Do you think that humans should really respect a human and don't cause pain? Or is this a sort of uh, exaggeration? Uh, I think that's a little bit of a creative press release, honestly, mm-hmm. because robots don't feel anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you can design a system where you know a robot can for example like sense an impact and then that you know give and then that either tells it to stop or like uh feeds into an algorithm that's like gives it a negative kind of reinforcement score and something so that it does that less frequently and you can make the argument i guess that it that works kind of like a pain system but it's it's not a pain system um i have i have no problem with that like it calling it a like it's really tempting to write a headline about robots that feel pain and Mm -hmm. i I may have written a headline like that because i've reported on this before um but I hope that in the article I was very clear that this is not actually pain. This is just like a, a way of mm-hmm. um, informing a robot about, you know, what actions might lead to it damaging itself. But, mm-hmm. you know, obviously even it damaging itself, it's not going to feel pain. And and there's, there's a lot to unpack here. Like, uh, you know, it is kind of, there's this whole species of robots that, Uh, can adapt, like legged robots that can adapt their motion um, to kind of keep moving even if they lose a limb or more. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, they they sure look like they're in pain when they're floundering around on the floor, but they're not. And this is kind of our issue as humans. Like we've we've just got to get over that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, of course, if you talk to HRI researchers, they will say that, or some of them, some of them will say, maybe I, sorry, I don't want to speak for anyone obviously but like that uh humans like feeling empathy towards robots even though robots aren't themselves feeling pain is you know that's more about us as humans than about the robots and it's good to feel empathy uh and if you know you you don't feel any empathy towards a robot that is being tortured even though it's not feeling anything that that kind of might say more something about you, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. So 
when you report about robotics topics of just different research projects, how you make sure you are not biased to some groups or any project in about robotics? <laughs> I try, but okay. I mean, I, it, it's I'm a human. It's hard to avoid bias. Mm -hmm. um, there's two kinds of bias, I guess. There's uh, I shouldn't say that. There's there's lots of bias, uh, but two I can highlight is uh, first there's the bias I have as a journalist who is attempting to write stories that people will read. Mm -hmm. um, so one thing I mentioned already was that I'm sort of biased against writing about algorithms um, because it's difficult to do well um, and difficult even if done well it's difficult to get people to read about it. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I am biased towards when I go to a conference, I'm biased towards like physical robots mm -hmm. that are doing something. Um, you know, I, I don't often write about robots in simulation, mm -hmm. uh, for that reason too. Um, and then the other bias is, I, I mean, I don't know how, how much this affects things, but you know, I, if I've met you at a conference, I it's easier for me to write about what you're working on and to, mm -hmm. to kind of, as a journalist, just like maintaining connections with people is a big part of my job. Um, and that's why I go to conferences too, is to mm -hmm. not just to see videos and posters, but to meet researchers and talk to them. And so I guess it, I guess it's a kind of bias where, you know, if I've written about your work before and I've met you at a conference a couple of times and we've exchanged emails, like, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm I'm probably more likely to write about what you're working on than mm. someone I've never met. But but I should be totally clear. Like a lot of the greatest stories I've ever I've written are just from people emailing me out of nowhere saying, "Hey, I've got this cool robot I've been working on. You should check it out." Mm -hmm. uh, that does that happens with some frequency, but it doesn't happen often enough. Mm -hmm. um, and I really wish that people would would do more of that and. So many times I go to conferences and I'll see something amazing and I'll talk to the researcher and it's like they have no clue how cool <laughs> what they're working on is. Uh, so just, you know, if you, I just uh, mm -hmm. want to reinforce the fact that robotics researchers, all of them are doing amazing stuff mm -hmm. and um, people want to know about it. And the most fulfilling part of my job is being able to help them share that. Mm -hmm. So if if you're a robotics researcher working on something amazing, and I'm sure you are, you should let me know about it. Okay. So uh, I would like to ask you about that China is doing now, like a new stride is robotics by having a robotic anchor woman or man. Do you think if you have a robotic journalist and take your job, how you would feel about that? If, yeah. <laughs> You, because uh, it's something resemble you, but journalist, robotic journalist, and take your job. Part of me would be like, "Hey, that's great. I can relax a little bit." But I'm, I'm not. I'm not too worried about it. Like, if if China or anyone else wants to uh, develop a robot that can communicate information, mm -hmm. then that's fine. I think that the trick is. The, the job security I have is 
is knowing what information to communicate mm-hmm. and communicating that information in a compelling and engaging way. And that's that I'm not really worried about. Um, like I know that there are robots or you know autonomous pieces of software that can analyze a baseball game, for example, and and write you know, 75% of an article about that baseball game, just based on the statistics and stuff. Uh, so that that's fine. Um, but that's not really what what my job is. Uh, my job is, is being able to find good stories, uh, like knowing what would be a good story and what you know, wouldn't be as good of a story. Uh, like knowing what the right questions are to ask, knowing how to write it in a way that's engaging and understandable, like being able to read through a research paper and translate that into an article that someone with only a casual interest in robots would read. And then hopefully like making it entertaining and a little bit funny and all of that stuff. And, and that's, I, I have, feel like I have some some job security because this is mm-hmm. all of these things are things that robots and autonomous systems and AI like they're notoriously bad at this sort of thing. So I feel okay about that. They can try. <laughs> okay, but in general, do you think robots can could lead in social inequality? Because sometimes when we do research, we didn't consider what could be the consequences in the long run. But when you look to these robots, it's come to mind, or maybe this maybe endanger human in the future or take the jobs. Do you think this is good? A big possibility could happen. Yeah, I I do think so. I think that the you know, robots are kind of in the near to medium term are going to be very expensive, um, especially ones that can do any sort of non-basic task and and that's already a problem because Mm -hmm. the people that take advantage of them are going to be the people that can afford them whether it's afford them directly or afford services uh, from the companies that use them um so you know that that's certainly an issue um at the same time i think that robots are going to be an important part of like an elder care strategy going forward uh, if for no other reason than, than that we just don't have the capacity of, of humans to provide the care that is necessary um, for other humans as they age. Mm-hmm. So I think technology leads to social inequality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think some of that is is a choice. I mean, it, mm-hmm. I want to be careful here, but you know, like people develop robots commercially in order to make money. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that, there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, but I think that it, it's more difficult, at least right now to develop a robot with social good in mind that also has like a really compelling value proposition that you know you can go out and get the investment that you need to do the very expensive development that all robots require um and so we've seen initiatives from like 
you know, Toyota's working mm-hmm. a lot about this, but they have a ton of resources on their own. And so it's it's hard to get in like the innovation space for a small company with maybe with a really good idea to like get the funding and resources that they need to work on this. And we've seen there, there are some companies working on this, but, you know, like it's a really hard problem, too, when you mm-hmm. think about elder care, because, you know, ideally you want a mobile robot in a home that would be able to like you know, pick up stuff for people and, you know, help lift them if they need mm-hmm. it. And, and that's just, like, it's the problem with robots. Like, you need a lot of hardware for that, and that's really expensive. And who's going to pay for it? So I think robots are just one part of of that problem. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it we really, as a society, have to decide or kind of, or at least think about the fact that robots do, technology in general, but robots specifically as well, mm-hmm. do do cause some problems, but they can also be a solution if we can kind of agree that that's a solution that is worth putting our resources toward, even if the return is not a billion dollars, but just, you know, a better life for people. Mm-hmm. So I would like to ask you about uh, the article about Uncanny Valley and just we asked mm-hmm. ask four kids today whether they would like to have a robot that resembles them and all of them say no. And I would like to ask you whether you personally prefer to have a robot that resembles you. Uh, I don't know what's the answer if it's some asking. And do you think this is something why some researchers do this kind of robots? Although the fact some people don't like it, I don't know what's your your, your perspective on that. My personally, I don't like anthropomorphic robots, okay. um, and I understand why some researchers use them a lot because if you want to like study some specific kinds of human-robot interaction, like having a robot that that looks a lot like a human can be really valuable. Um, many people believe that in order to do effective interaction with a human you want a very human-like robot because then you know you can do all the expression stuff um, and I think that their thinking is that you know right now it's a little weird looking but if we keep working on this problem and, and you know figure out all of the micro expression stuff and get the right skin and little actuators and all of that then you know we'll get to the point where you can do all of that kind of direct uh, non-verbal communication that that humans do all the time so that's fine um, maybe that'll happen I think it's not going to happen in the near term I think that while it's trying to be made to happen mm-hmm. it's pretty weird that's just that's just my opinion um, but I'm, I'm glad that it's being worked on I think that it might pay off in the long term mm-hmm. but my personal preference or I guess both preference and and thought is that you can do a lot of the important communication with non-anthropomorphic robots that have some anthropomorphic features Mm -hmm. uh, but are otherwise like obviously not human and and they're very they can be very simple one of my favorite robots is keep on which is it's like two little yellow balls and it's got mm-hmm. 
two tiny little eyes and a nose, but he's super expressive just because of the way his body moves. Mm -hmm. um, there are all kinds of other examples like that. Um, Blossom is a great example. Yeah. It's it's also a, a small robot. It's got just kind of two ears and no face, mm -hmm. or they might have put eyes on it by now, and it's it's knit, uh, which is really cool. And it can be very expressive. Um, there's a lot of different really creative ways that you can go with making an expressive robot. And I think that the benefit of not going down the, the human-like path mm -hmm. is that without the kind of expectations that people get when looking at a human face, you can really leverage all kinds of other design features and mm -hmm. get a similar level of expressivity when it's a lot in a system that's a lot simpler and just a lot more kind of non-creepy, non I guess. Yeah. So when you report about robots, do you, do you, which pronoun you use it, like he or she or it? And why? I almost exclusively use it, I think. Yeah. Uh, unless the researchers have had themselves specified a gender for some reason. Mm -hmm. I think. I mean, I've, I've read a lot of articles. I, I don't remember what happened in all of them. I do remember a there. You know, there are a couple situations that have come up where um, there. The researchers have specified a gender for for some reason that I've had to ask about, mm -hmm. or that um, you know that that they refer to the robot as kind of he she or it interchangeably. Mm -hmm. uh, so so many people you know, are of the position that the robot either this is especially true for social robots it either doesn't have a gender or it has whatever gender you want. Um, I think the most interesting case, though, about robot gender that I can remember is probably with uh, NASA's Valkyrie robot, mm -hmm. which um, I don't know how much I'm I'm supposed to talk about this, but it so it's a big humanoid robot that NASA developed mm -hmm. that had a very female shape. Yeah. And part of the reason for that was just the arrangement of the actuators in the robot's torso. And sort of, you know, we asked whether it was female or not. And NASA's position was, well, our robots don't have gender, which is fine. But mm -hmm. on the other hand, like there are most robots, especially like the big humanoid robots, the really cool robots like they all have male names. Mm -hmm. They're all like male looking. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't see anything wrong with it. To be clear, this is not NASA's position, but mm -hmm. I don't see anything wrong with NASA saying we have this awesome robot. And by the way, you know, it's it's female or yeah. at least it is. It has you know a female name and female features just just as sort of like a reminder that you know, like there's, how, do, how should I say this? Like, so the, the default gender almost for most robots, especially mm -hmm. humanoids, is male. Yeah. And there's no there's no good reason for that. I mean, maybe I guess it's simplicity or like if it's, I don't know why it has to be the default. Yeah. And I think that if, if we can make it clear that, you know, a, a robot 
if you want it to be female, like if that's important to you, there are some robots that can be like that. Like, why not? I mean, I think it sends a good message. Yeah, but do you think it's kind of uh, like a racial bias or gender bias? Because sometimes it could be affecting like what we face now bias in decision making or designing or like soup dispensers that didn't discriminate the, the color of the skin. So this kind of issue, do you think this is, could be critical or in the long run when you design a robot? And what is the message behind it? Do you think this is something we have to consider through your reporting? It it's something that we should consider. I think mm -hmm. that gender can be a little bit tricky because um, like, you know, you can look at, at if you make a humanoid robot and you want to be clear, it's not, you know, just male, like you'd have to add features and that kind of makes it explicitly female. Mm -hmm. Like it, it's difficult, but not impossible to make a humanoid robot that is, is mm -hmm. it, you could identify as either gender, I guess. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, I, ideally there would be some flexibility there so that all robots don't look like dudes. Um, the you know race and and skin color i think that's much more of a kind of an artificial intelligence question mm -hmm. than a robots question um, i can address it from the angle that uh, there's been research recently about kind of white robots um, that showed i think that people do have a racial bias when it comes to the color of a robot and there's there's a lot of different ways to look at that mm -hmm. and i've talked to people who put robots in homes and they're like well you know we we make the robots white because that fits in with people's decor whatever their decor is like whatever they painted their house if you make a white robot it'll probably fit mm -hmm. um so there are there are certainly valid design reasons to make white robots and you know, there are, it's, there are, there are a bunch of different sides to this and it's a tricky issue, but I do agree that it's not something that the robotics community has really considered. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's important to think about and whether or to what extent that leads to changes to design is unclear like i don't think there's an obvious like right way to go mm -hmm. um, but i do think that it's both that and the issue of um you know robots with identifiable gender i think it's something that we should be thinking about in a larger context than we often do mm -hmm. so do you think that people or like people in general have to be afraid from robotics for instance we saw that the department of defense just saying that people not have to be afraid from robots. However, it could be a killer robot, as we know, maybe secretive project. But through your reporting, do you think, oh, people must be afraid from these robots? Because maybe now we we can't really perceive the, their existence, but in the future, we could lead uh, to significant changes, like killing people or abusing their power. Do you think this is something people have to be afraid now and take strides against it? I don't think it's something that people need to be afraid of. Mm -hmm. I think it's something that we should be talking about. Excuse me. Um, I would, 
I would first say that I, I really don't like the term killer robot. And the reason yeah. I don't like that is because it, it like ascribes this agency or desire to the robot itself. Mm-hmm. And robots, robots are tools that do what we program them to do. So if it's a killer robot, it's because somebody said, I'm going to program you to be a killer robot. So yeah. it's really like a killer human mm-hmm. programming a robot to be their you know, they're a tool of theirs. Um, you know, having said that, obviously the military is a, uh, it is very interested in robots and has been using robots for a long time. Um, the idea of robots that can harm humans. I mean, there have been like, there have been autonomous robotic, you know, missiles and mm-hmm. stuff for decades. And it's something that we don't talk about a lot. And like, there's some, some sort of mental like difference, I mm-hmm. think between the killer quote unquote killer robots or autonomous lethal, uh, lethal autonomous weapon systems that we already have and have had for a long time and sort of this next generation, that people are more concerned about. And I'm not sure, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not sure why that there's that, that separation there. Um, but there's been a lot of discussion about this. Um, I've written a lot about it. it. Like there are certainly people who say that, you know, we lethal autonomous weapon systems are kind of inhumane and, cause all kinds of problems and we just we just can't we have to ban them um there are other people who say well you know humans in combat are super dangerous and it's possible that a constrained like a a robotic system that is constrained in hardware or software could actually be less dangerous than Mm -hmm. that so we should research it and you know see if it's viable um, which I kind of come down on, on that side of it, I think, um, just in the sense that I feel like it's, it's worth exploring. Well, I feel like robots are sort of inevitable mm-hmm. in, in this context as well as many other contexts. And therefore, I think we should be exploring the ways in which they can be used safely and perhaps beneficially. Um, but I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm I'm certainly not an expert in that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, the, the last thing I would say is just that uh, it, it's a super complicated issue. I don't think people need to be scared now. I think it's something that we do need to be thinking about and talking about. And uh, we, we posted an article on Spectrum a couple of weeks ago where uh, people from people who are uh, in the kind of ban all all killer robots camp for and people in the, you know, military robots might be beneficial camp. I said killer robots, I shouldn't have, but they came together and they agreed on a potential path forward. And we published a white paper that they wrote and it's definitely worth reading. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I would like to ask you, what does a robot you imagine to have or you wish that someone could consider it or build it and you haven't found it yet? Is something you imagine a robot that does not exist yet? So are you reporting all these robots around you? I can imagine all kinds. Um, mm-hmm. I would, I would love an autonomous car that worked. 
the mm-hmm. way that it was supposed to mm-hmm. 100% of the time. Um, I hate driving and I don't like owning a car. And I think that's a, something that will be solved in the next couple decades. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking forward to that. Um, I'm, I'm also looking forward to as I get older, having robots in, in my home to support me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really hard problem mm. that I know a lot of people are working on. And I'm just kind of thinking about, you know, it would be great to have a robot that could actually clean up my house, not just vacuum the floors. Mm-hmm. So I think my priorities are like, you know, I, I want robots that can improve my quality of life, that can, you know, give me more free time that can minimize the amount of stress that I'm under. Um, I, this is obviously like, I'm sure, I'm sure these will happen. I'm sure they're going to be super expensive when they first happen, but maybe eventually it'll be something that I can Mm -hmm. have in my life too. Mm -hmm. And and do you think that because some people and and just loneliness it happened around the world, do you think robots can really cope people who suffer from loneliness? Do you think this is something like developing emotion towards the robots? Is something could happen or not helping people? Because some people think human need human, but the fact that the percentage of loneliness is increasing so all around the world. Yeah, I think robots are one tool that can help with that. I don't think that robots are going to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have... You know, I've tried out a lot of robotic pets, and they're mm-hmm. okay. They don't really solve any kind of loneliness problem that mm-hmm. that I have. Um, I may not be the target audience. I recognize that. Mm-hmm. There's a temptation to say that robots can, you know, solve all of these problems, and while they can solve many problems, interacting with humans is not what they're best at right now. So. To the extent that robots can help people feel less lonely, uh, they can maybe mitigate that a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I still think that kind of human on human contact is is an important thing that robots really can't take the place of right now. Mm-hmm. So I would like to ask you, what is the most uh, movie about robots you like it or maybe you dislike it? Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved Wall-E. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how, you know, all of all these little bits actually fit inside of him. Um, I tried not to think about that while watching the movie, but uh, I I just love the fact that Wally was so incredibly expressive hmm. and with like, I mean, with such a limited amount of actuators, like he didn't have a mouth or anything mm-hmm. like he, he barely, you know, but I just thought that was that was amazing the way that he became um, such a character and it was it, it made me feel good about like the future of social robotics mm-hmm. just just thinking like you know at some point if we could have a little robot in our home that's that's like Wally and it doesn't have to be you know fluffy it doesn't have to have a mm-hmm. face it just has to be that expressive mm-hmm. and that that's possible so that that's probably my favorite. Mm-hmm. That's probably my favorite movie. Um, yeah. I don't know about. I think movies that I tend to be skeptical of are just mm. the ones that have robots as kind of the evil, mm. kill all humans things, um, or anything that at this point anything that shows a robot that looks like a robot doing something that's, imp- that's impossible for an actual robot to do. 
because I'm like, oh man, that's just gonna, that's gonna just gonna raise people's expectations even more. I'm like this is, <laughs> here we go again. Yeah. So I would like to ask you if you heard about soft robotics before. Soft robotics. Yeah, yeah, of course. I've, so I've what do you, what do, what do you think about soft robotics? Because still emerging field, and what what do you think about it? When you're bored about it, or you hear about it, I'm I'm really optimistic about soft robotics, mm. like just the the potential for, um, like both both flexibility, mm -hmm. like the potential for flexibility in structure that leads to flexibility in tasks, and also the kind of potential for working directly around humans because of the inherent safety. Uh, it's really exciting. I mean, robots have been kind of by definition like rigid metal things for such a long time that it's fantastic to see this this completely different approach towards them and there have been so many exciting things mm -hmm. um the place that I'm always like you know the question that I always ask when I am reporting about a soft robot is uh you know many of them are uh pneumatic in mm -hmm. one way or another like either powered by air or powered by liquid. And so it's like, okay, well, so where do you put the pump? Like, or, you know, you see these soft robots with like 5 million uh, little tubes coming mm -hmm. off of them to some air compressor somewhere. So I think that that's the next big transition point I'm excited about for soft robots. And I've written a couple articles about like, you know, soft pumps and like, um, and uh, systems that can generate and absorb gas that are completely self-contained and, mm -hmm. and that's really exciting yeah mm -hmm. great so i would like to ask you in the next 100 years what do you think mm -hmm. about robotics and what do you wish at this time 100 years <laughs> 100 years yeah uh, i'm i'm i may not be around for 100 years <laughs> but let's see i mean to, to think forward a hundred years, like I'm just thinking back like 10 or 20 years mm. and then trying to think about what robots were like 10 years ago and then trying to think, you know, 10 times that in the future. I, I don't think like, I, I don't even know how, like how I can, how I can guess about that. Even robotics moves so fast, even 10 years mm -hmm. is really difficult to predict. I, I do think that you know, obviously, I think, you know, we'll have all kinds of, you know, f full autonomy and unstructured environments with the capability of a human a hundred years. No Do you have problem. a good feeling for it or not good feeling? Do you think you, a have, feeling? A, you oh. have a good feeling for it or? Mm, well, the question, I guess, is what do you what constitutes a feeling yeah. like and and this goes back to to the the turing test right mm -hmm. like if a robot can convince you that it has feelings and if every test you give it says that it has feelings does it have feelings mm -hmm. even if you know that it's just a simulation running on a chip mm -hmm. um but do you think robots can be replaced by human can be replaced by robots do you think this something could happen like emotionally like in general if it's something that you think maybe could happen maybe not just we see what could be in the future in 100 years coming so do you think robots can really replace human 
in in many contexts yeah yes i'm i'm less sure about like if again a hundred years is a long time but it's hard for me to say definitively i i would like to say definitively that robots in a hundred years still won't have like that level of creativity that humans have or still won't you still won't be able to form emotional connections with them like you can with mm-hmm. another human but 100 years i i don't know maybe mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm i'm not sure mm-hmm. yeah. you know if a robot can perfectly simulate an emotion uh, the kind of emotional spectrum of a human is there any reason you wouldn't be able to form a connection with it mm-hmm. i don't know i don't mm-hmm. know yeah so now do you have any robots at your home Oh yeah, I have. I mean, I have uh, like six or seven oh. vacuums. I've got three or four drones. I've got <laughs> a bunch of toys. I've got a paro. Wow. Um, I have an ibo showing up next week. Yeah, I, That's my house me. is full of robots. <laughs> cool. So, and we are just finishing now. So, I would like to ask you, as a journalist, what is the best advice was given to you, or something would like to share the audience. Best advice was a personal, <laughs> professional level. Yeah. Uh, I think probably, at least in the context of journalism and in the context of robots, I mm. think the best advice that was given me was that uh, it doesn't matter that you don't know anything. Mm. This is specifically when I mentioned at the very beginning, like I started this robotics blog called Bot Junkie, and or a partner of mine started it and when he started the blog, he said, you should write for this. And I said, well, I don't know anything about robots. And he said, it doesn't matter that you don't know anything about robots, which was totally true. Like it was actually turned out to be an asset because I had to learn about robots from scratch and mm. I'm, I'm still learning about robots. And that whole, the process of not knowing anything about something and kind of trying to immerse myself in it, I'm still going through that. And I think part of what makes me a good journalist is that just being totally willing to admit mm-hmm. that I don't know about, you know, whatever, like whether it's robots or something else, just admitting that you don't know and being willing to listen mm-hmm. and learn um, has made a huge difference for me. And it, it means that like I'm able to explain how robots work to the audience that I write for because I'm explaining it to myself at the same time. Like I'm trying to get myself to understand it because mm-hmm. it's still something that that I'm working on. So I think just just being able to you know admit that you don't know stuff and then try really hard to learn stuff, mm-hmm. um, especially if it's something that you're not necessarily inherently comfortable with, it can be a really, really rewarding experience. Mm-hmm. Great. So I don't know if you have any final words for the podcast and people listening to you, if you would like to. <laughs> I, I would just like to reiterate that, I mean, first, I mean, if, if you know, you're uh, a roboticist doing, doing research, mm-hmm. I mean, thank you for, for doing all the amazing stuff that you do, because that's the only reason that I get to keep doing what I'm doing is yeah. that the research community just... Mm-hmm keeps doing all this amazing stuff. Um, so thank you for that. And thank you for, for reading. Mm-hmm. If you read, if you don't, that's okay. But, but thank you anyway. And the last thing I would say is just, um, please get in touch with, with, um, you know, spectrum directly, get in touch mm-hmm. with me, send me an email or, or, you know, I'm on Twitter and 
if you're doing robotics research, like we want to hear about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's so fulfilling for us to be able to help researchers share what they're doing. And I hope it's fulfilling for them to be able to, for more people to see how cool their work is. So just please feel free to let us know what it is so mm-hmm. that we can you know, help you so, uh, tell everyone else about it. Yeah. So I think uh, many people will send you after listening to that. You have, will have Good, many stories, so. <laughs> <laughs> including me. Okay, <laughs> thanks so much. It was great to talk to you. And on behalf of IEEE REST Soft Robotics C, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.